My name's Anna, I'm married to Simon, the leadership team here. It's a real joy to be able to preach to you this morning. I'd also really like to just thank everyone for all your offers of help whilst I was away. Had a hole in the ceiling, a leaking shower. I was like literally reading a psalm about the Lord watering the earth. And I thought, it's really weird because I can hear water in my back room, which isn't right. And yeah, I touched the ceiling and woo, out, down came the ceiling. So that was fun. And uh, yeah, we've had one of those weeks. So be gracious this morning. There is a preach. It's written down, but it might be a bit incoherent at points. Um, And this morning, I'm also under pressure because I was in, accidentally, in a meeting with Owen where he was going through all the, like, media statistics, and I got the longest preach, which I was so annoyed by. Not surprised, to be fair. But I was annoyed by, so I'm under pressure today to not win the longest preach award. So it's going to be short and to the point. Um, But before I start reading this morning, I think it's just really important to remind ourselves that when we read the Old Testament, we are actually looking for how the Old Testament points to the coming of Jesus. The Old Testament tells us about the nature and the character of God. It tells us about the state of humankind, our position before God. And every story tells us about the need for a saviour, and it points to the coming of Jesus. Now, in a minute behind me, a storybook will come up, I hope. Don't put any pressure, Phil. Oh, is it there? Oh, it's empty. Oh, it's behind me. Um, So this book, honestly, it's a children's book, but this book is the best book you can read the Old Testament stories in, and they tell you how each story points to the coming of Jesus. If you don't know a child you can read it with, then I just suggest you have it on your bookcase in case a child comes over and maybe reads it beforehand. It's a really, really great book, and um, it really helps us to grasp what we are reading in the Old Testament. An example of this would be when you look at Noah's Ark, you can see the holiness of God, you can see the state of humankind being really desperately described as that every intention of the thoughts of man's hearts is evil, and how the people who went into the ark, they were protected from the judgment of God. God provided salvation and rescue for them, and those who listened to and obeyed the voice of God were saved, and they were protected from his judgment. So as we read through Exodus, and we're reading the story of the Passover, and the people finally leaving Egypt, I want you to be thinking about the questions behind us. How does this story tell us about the coming of a saviour? What does it tell us about the nature and character of God? And what does it tell us about our state before God? So we're going to start reading in Exodus 11. You'll be really pleased to know I'm not going to read it, the whole three chapters. That would be dreadful, wouldn't it? So I'm going to start Exodus 11. We're just going to skip around a little bit. So the Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. 
There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will there be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all those, these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the lands of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all the wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the very first month of the year. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a, a household for a lamb. And then it says about how to sort that out. And it says they shall kill the lamb at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike earth all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then we're going to skip to verse 21. When Moses goes to the elders and he gives them all instructions of how to put the blood on the door. And he tells them, you shall observe this rite as a statue for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people in Israel, in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, and there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done, as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewellery and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people great favour in the sight of the Egyptians so that they left them, they had what they'd asked for. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. 
there were 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. That is a lot of people, isn't it? Poor Moses, you just feel so sorry for him. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they brought out of Egypt, for for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." The time that the people had been in Egypt was 430 years. It's incredible, isn't it, that they'd been there for 430 years. So from these verses, I just want to make three points. The first point is the Israelites had developed a trust that led to obedience. Do you notice as we're reading this passage that the response of the people to Moses as he brings the word of God, it's completely changed, hasn't it? Initially, we read in Exodus 5 that the leaders of Israel and people in in Egypt were really angry with Moses. Everybody was angry with Moses and Aaron. Actually, the leaders of Israel were angry because their treatment had hardened them and had broken them. So they didn't trust Moses or God at his word. Then we see as the plagues happen, the Israelites are spared, the Egyptians were humiliated, that the trust of the Israelites increased. They learned and learned to trust that God did as he said, that he's faithful and true, and to not do as God commands is really stupid and ultimately leads to injury, destruction and death. The Israelites learned to trust God and in turn to be obedient to his every word. You see this change in Exodus 11, verse 3. We read how Moses went from being a man who they were really angry with to being very great in the sight of the people in Egypt and that the Egyptians had shifted from mocking the Israelites and their God to favouring them to the point they gave them gold and jewellery and clothing. God had so graciously and mercifully taught his people to trust him and to be obedient to his call. The plagues had served as a means of judgment, yes, but also as a means of mercy, not only for the Israelites, but also for some of the Egyptians. They'd also come to trust in the Lord too. You can read this in Exodus 9 when you get the plague of the hailstones, that actually those who listened and feared God and thought this is definitely going to happen because we've had a few plagues before it, they brought their livestock in from the field and they were protected. Those who trusted God had learned to be obedient to his voice and were then protected from the judgment of God and rested in the mercy and the kindness of God. When you read these verses, you can read about the kindness and gentleness of God. In Exodus 6 verse 9, we read how the people of Israel didn't listen to Moses or God because of their broken spirits and harsh slavery. Do you see how actually God could have made the Israelites bow? He could have forced them. He's the creator of the whole world. He decides when you take your next breath. He could have just said, you are going to bow before me and I'm going to make you do it. But he didn't. He taught the Israelites really kindly and graciously to trust him and to be obedient to him as their faithful saviour and the one who had heard their cries. God had seen that his very own people and his children were broken, and that they needed the mercy, the kindness, and the gentleness of God. Do you see how it's the same with us, isn't it? God is so gracious and kind. He teaches us that he is a God who is trustworthy, that actually he is the one who cares for us, and he so gently brings us to him. 
You know, when Si and I were first married, someone gave us a prophetic word, which has been true of our life, that there is two mountains and is it a canyon in between? What's it called? Valley. There's another word that I'm thinking of, but anyway, I can't remember it. Anyway, there's a big rope in between the two mountains. And they had a picture of us hanging with our, um, just holding on with our hands in this, on this big rope. And at first, as we were going across, we were like, this is really hard work, this really hurts, and we're going to die, because there's a big gap. And then they said, as the picture went on, God showed the picture more. We were just like swinging through this great big hole underneath us and we were just swinging through and they said God was going to teach us to trust him and we were going to learn to no longer be frightened of what will happen if we let go of the rope and fall off and that has been the story of our life that God has been so faithful to us but actually initially God taught us to trust him that when he says I'm going to provide for this he is going to provide for it it will be okay that when God says it's okay I know you can't see where the next bit of rope is but I know where it is you don't need to know where it is that you learn to trust that God so graciously and kindly cares for us you know for many years the Israelites must have felt they were crying out to God and he wasn't listening they were in Egypt for 430 years And now we see how God brought about his plan. And he graciously and kindly teaches them the truth that trust leads to obedience. The outworking of trust is that we learn to obey the voice of God. If you're here today and you think, you know, I have cried out to God so many times and I don't think he's listening to me. And you would say, actually, I would describe myself in those same terms that my, as the Israelites were described earlier on in Exodus, that your spirit is broken, that life has broken you. Can I just really encourage you to trust Jesus? He is completely trustworthy. His words will never fail. He does as he says, and he always, always keeps his promises. He knows what is best. And that actually when we obey him, when we trust him, when we listen to what he is saying, he brings about his plan in our lives. Whatever this life may bring you, and actually just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you won't encounter all the normal things of life, and for some people even more than the normal things of life. If you know and love Jesus, you can be sure that you will be with Jesus forever and ever, that Jesus himself is going to wipe away every tear from your eye, that actually he will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant, for trusting me and obeying me, even when you didn't understand what I was doing. And that's actually when obedience is most difficult, isn't it? It's when we don't know what God's doing. You're sort of trusting that he's doing the right thing. And, and, and actually, we don't always have to understand. And I think that's the thing that we find really difficult as people, isn't it? We don't always have to understand what God is doing, but we do have to trust him and obey him. In John 14, Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and that he's going to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And later on in that passage, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus knows that our hearts get troubled, and his words to us are to trust him. 
You know, the saying that everybody trusts in something is completely true. And in our society, we tend to trust ourselves, the latest life guru or the latest health advice, which I'm a nurse, so I can tell you it changes all the time. The recent thing is heart disease, like apparently all the things they've said for years are not really true. And it turns out that your genetics are really important, which means I'm screwed. <laughs> it's a lovely way to know, know how you're going to die is good, isn't it? Um, that's what they're saying. And they've changed the advice quite rapidly overnight, it seemed to me. Um, scientific knowledge is where people put their trust. They think, if I trust this person, my life will get better. But actually, all these things change all the time. And they don't deliver... But Jesus, he is the truth. Jesus, he is the life. He is peace. He is hope. He is unchanging. And he gives true life to people that trust him. And we mustn't get distracted as believers by trusting in other things and other people. We put our trust into the unchanging truth that Jesus loves us. If you feel like you're not hearing God at the moment and you think, Do you know, I just pray and pray and God never speaks to me. He never speaks to me. He's not very clear. This is God speaking to you. When you can't hear the voice of God very clearly, throw yourself into reading the word of God. This is his words for us. And the Bible says not a single word will be lost from this. Everything that is prophesied in this book, that is promised in this book, will happen. And so we can give ourselves to reading the word of God. In these passages, we also see that those who were wise saw that trusting God and obeying the voice of God was a really good plan. To trust and obey saved them from the judgments of God as the Lord. And their act of obedience with the Passover meal actually meant that the Israelites were saved and were given freedom from their slavery in Egypt. Secondly, we see that the Israelites had learned an obedient faith that leads to rescue from judgment and salvation. Obedient faith actually meant that this final plague led to the end of slavery. It led to a new season for God's people in Exodus 12, verse 2, we read how actually it's the Passover meal determined the beginning of the year, the first of the months, for the people of Israel from that day forwards. It became a reminder for all generations of the deliverance of God, how God had rescued his people. Terry Virgo, in his book on Exodus, says, The Passover provided safety for the present storm and the promise of life in the future. Terrifying judgment was literally at the door, but the congregation of Israel was shown a means of escape. The Israelites and any others who would put the blood of the lamb on the door frames of their house, the death of that Passover lamb was a substitute for every family who sprinkled the blood on their doors. Basically, because the lamb had died, their firstborn could live. Roberts and Wilson, in, in their book on this, say the Israelite families were not saved by their godliness that night or even by the amount of confidence that they had in God. They were simply saved by the fact that the blood was over their house. Now, can any of you see how this might be pointing to Jesus yet? Just a little bit. You can see it slightly. Because the blood was over the house, the angel of death passed over their house and they were saved from the judgment of God. But those who chose to remain in pride and a refusal to surrender and obey the voice of God, who had shown himself to be true in all the plagues that led up to this final plague, those who displayed the arrogance of Pharaoh, 
who still said, who is the Lord that I should do as he says? They face the judgment of God alone. Do you notice in our society the same problem of how Pharaoh's heart was is everywhere? There's a total disregard of God's righteous requirements and a dismissing of the saviour that he sent and the gospel of Jesus. People shake their fist at God. They say horrendous things about God and they live life doing what they see is good and right. Everyone determines their own truth. That's the new thing, isn't it? Everyone determines their own truth and everyone does what they think is right. And they ignore the God who created them and loves them so much that he sent his son into the world to die for them. But in 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 5 and Hebrews 9, we are warned that the final and universal judgment is coming for all people and everybody will be judged by God, not just by our standards, but by his. But those who are protected by the blood of Jesus, we are told, who is our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5, they are saved because the blood of Jesus is a substitution for our own. Jesus is our Passover lamb. In 1 Peter 5, we're reminded that you're not saved because of your money, your position, or your heritage, but you are saved completely by the blood of Jesus. In John 1, 29, John the Baptist, as he sees Jesus walking towards him, cries out, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, he was surrounded by Jewish people who did the Passover meal every year. And so they would have known that he was saying, here is our Passover lamb who's come for us. Jesus, who was the firstborn of many brothers, we're told in Romans 8. Jesus, who was actually crucified at Passover time. He died once for all. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb, and his blood has the power to wash away all of our sins for all time, for all people who choose to obey him. Christ truly is our perfect Passover lamb. He was sacrificed for us so that judgment would pass over us. We are justified, which means just as if we'd never sinned, by our faith in the blood of the lamb. It doesn't matter, actually, and nothing else matters. It's all about the blood of the lamb. It doesn't matter if you're really wealthy. It doesn't matter if you're really poor. It doesn't matter if you feel you're doing really well in life. It doesn't matter if you feel like you're completely failing in life. It doesn't matter if you're really, really well or you're really, really poorly. The truth is, actually, it's the blood of Jesus and our trust and obedience to him that, keeps, that saves us. Because of Jesus, we have peace with God. And it's a wonderful truth for us, isn't it? That we enter into the promises of God. And it's something we should celebrate all of the time. Do you remember Tom last week was saying the Israelites were learning who God was? God hadn't fully revealed himself. They were sort of learning who is God and what is he like? And through the Passover meal, God showed himself to be the Lord as their redeemer. He redeems his people. In Exodus 13, you read about these ceremonies, which are, you know, you think, what is that about? You get the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, then you get consecration of the firstborns. And actually, they further reminded the Israelites of their need to know the Lord as Redeemer. Jesus came to redeem us. He is the Redeemer of all people. We're going to read in uh, Romans 3 in the New Testament. It says this. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God brought forward as a propitiation, which is just a big word, which means the turning aside of God's anger by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. You know, we need the blood of Jesus. We need the forgiveness of Jesus. Don't be proud like Pharaoh. Don't say, I don't need God. I can live my life however I want. I determine what's right and wrong. This passage says that actually all have sinned and we fall short of what God requires. And I think actually if we're truly honest, we fall short of what we require of ourselves. We frequently know that by even our own standards of right and wrong, we don't get it right. God knows that. He knows we can't meet the standard that he sets. That's why he sent his son to die for us. His blood was a substitute for our own. And actually, all that Jesus asks from you is that you choose to surrender your life. You choose to say, actually, I am not going to be the king of my life. I'm going to let Jesus be the king of my life. I'm going to obey him, and I'm going to trust him with my life. Later on, I'm going to give an opportunity to respond to that if you've never done that with your life. Thirdly, and my final point, is that the Israelites had a readiness, which I don't even know is the words, but it suits, so we've got it today, that led to freedom. The fu- so we can see that the Israelites, in Exodus 12, verse 33, we see this amazing great escape happen out of Egypt. I mean, you just can't imagine it. 600,000 people just getting up, and just walking out, it would have taken a really long time, wouldn't it? Could you imagine? Man, I'd have lost my kids so many times. I lose my kids all the time. So I don't know what would have happened there. Actually, one of them was so bad at getting lost, I had to dress him in like really bright colours all the time so I could like pick him out of a crowd. That failed one day when another child was also wearing the same colours. And I thought I had my eye on him in this park and then realised I had my eye on someone else's child, and I had no idea where my child was. I did find him like 30 minutes later. It was dreadful. It's one of those horrible experiences. It's dreadful. But thankfully, there would have been a lot of people to hem in all the kids. This amazing mixed multitude, along with all the Israelites, left Egypt quickly after being told to get out, just as God had told Moses would happen in Exodus 11, verse 8. And they left wealthy. In verse 36, we read that the Lord had given the people favour in the sight of the Egyptians, and whatever they asked for, they gave them to them, and then so they plundered the Egyptians and left with loads of gold and jewellery and clothing. You know, they still have to carry it, so I reckon they had to cap it at a level. The Israelites' readiness to leave was based on faith, and it was based on trust. Did the Israelites really trust God's promises for them? They had to eat the Passover meal, fully prepared for departure, dressed in a way ready to leave. They had to eat it in a manner to not make it difficult or slow them down from moving as soon as the you can go came. Every child must have loved it. All those years of take your shoes off, don't have your coat on. Suddenly it was like, put your shoes on, have your coat on, be ready to go. You can fidget as much as you like during this meal. We're going to go soon. They even had their staff in their hand as they ate, which indicated a readiness to be on the move and to be working. They were going to be doing a long journey. Could have been a lot shorter, but we'll read about that later. You know, have you ever thought that we always think, oh, this is amazing, they all left. 
But it can't have been easy for the Israelites. They have been in Egypt for 430 years and for hundreds and hundreds of years have been slaves in Egypt. They'd acclimatized to Egypt. Generations had lived and died and been buried in Egypt. They'd been hearing about a promised land, but in reality, their daily life was experiencing cruelty and the oppression of slavery. Now they would have to leave everything behind. They'd leave behind their houses, their history, the familiarity of routine, and all the security of knowing where you are, knowing what you're doing, getting up every day, and knowing exactly what you're doing. They left the security of the culture and society structure that they knew and understood. They left all of that to go to the promised lands. We read that this mixed multitude that that left. There was Egyptians and other nationalities with them. It wasn't just um, the people of Israel. People who had been wise and seen what God was doing and thought, I'm going to go with these people. They're going somewhere fun. How the one true God had kept his promises also joined in, in this great escape from Egypt. Now, do you remember I said at the beginning, the Old Testament points to the coming of Jesus. Well, this multitude that went with Israel symbolized the global blessing of God, God's promises extending to every people group in the world. The material wealth that they left with symbolized God's abundance for us. We read later that they took Joseph's bones with him and they, that symbolized God's faithfulness to keep his promises. You know, Joseph Maud's color coat, that Joseph. And the pillar of cloud and fire were his presence with them as they left oppression. And they left with everything they needed to walk into freedom. You know, when we come to know Jesus, we enter into the kingdom of God. We leave behind the kingdom of darkness and we walk into the kingdom of heaven and we gain the wealth of heaven. We gain eternal salvation. We gain our sin removed. We gain our shame lifted off us. We gain healing and we gain life in all of its fullness. I can't imagine my life without Jesus. If you know Jesus today, when you try and imagine your life without him, you really can't imagine what it would be like. Jesus is our best friend. He's our saviour. He's our wise counsellor. He's our father. And we have all the promises of God. So like the Israelites, I think the question today is, are we ready? Do you live out your salvation with the same readiness to walk with God as the Egyptians, as the Israelites who got ready. They were ready, eating their dinner, ready to go. Do we trust God's promises or do we live tied to our old life? Do you live tied to your old security? Do you live tied to your old familiarity where you found your confidence like financial security and comfort? The biggest problem in the West for believers is comfort. We have a really great life. We do. Our life is so good. And actually, it's the biggest problem for us to be able to say, I do you know, I'm going to sacrifice a little bit of comfort to do what God is asking me to do. Do we live holding on to our past hurts, our past pains, our past grievances? Do we hold on to our sinful character traits, things like rage, gossip, manipulation, self-reliance, talking badly about people to their face, even worse. Well, actually, I think it's better than gossiping behind their back, to be honest. But do we do all those things? Do you emotionally withdraw from people when they annoy you to punish them for hurting you? 
Those things that feel really good and that our society tells you is a coping mechanism as part of this sinful nature and we choose to leave them behind. Do we live ready to hear the call of God on our life when he tells us to move? And I don't mean physically, although some people it might be. I mean spiritually. Are you ready to go? I want to ask you two questions. Are you ready? The questions are, do we live ready that when God, that if God doesn't show up, something will go wrong? Are you being invited to trust that God will show up? Is there an area in your life where God, you are being invited to trust that God will show up? If you can't think of any area in your life in that category where God is inviting you to trust that God will show up, then I would suggest you need to move spiritually. There should be areas in our life where if God doesn't show up, it's going to go, go wrong. You know, it's going to be really embarrassing. It's going to be really terrible. Maybe not really terrible, that's a bit dramatic, but it will not work out. When was the last time you spoke to your neighbour and offered to pray with them? If God doesn't show up when you do that, they're going to think you're even weirder than they already do. And let's be honest, everyone thinks their neighbours are weird. We all do. Don't try and lie about it. Everybody thinks their neighbours are weird. I'm so sorry to my neighbours. You're much more normal than me. Um, And it's a challenge to us, isn't it? Where are you being invited to trust that God will show up? And where are you being invited to follow God to? When was the last time you took a faith step? A proper faith step. When was the last time you did that? Because if you're not doing that in your life, then you are stationary and you're not moving in your walk with God. As a church, we believe that the good news of Jesus is to be preached to all people. We work this out by having a readiness to preach the gospel to those around us in Halsham and the surrounding villages. Well, practically, that actually looks like every believer at Halsham being ready to tell their friends, family, and people they meet about Jesus. That's what it looks like practically. It's not just Sai and Tom and Chris and Rob. You know, it's not their job because they became elders of the church. If you're a believer in Christchurch, it is your responsibility to tell other people about Jesus. You know, Anne was so brilliant at that, wasn't she? She told everyone about Jesus. Every conversation you have with her, she would say, oh, the Lord is so good to me. He's done this and he's done this. She was so refreshing to talk to because she'd be like, I was talking to this person in Tesco's and then I prayed for them to be healed. You're like, that's great, Anne, well done. It's amazing. That's how she lived her life. She lived like that. Are you ready to, say, to tell people about Jesus? Or do you say, well, actually, my friendship with this person or my friendship with my family is based on the fact that I never talk to them about Jesus. They don't like it, so I never mention him because it makes them feel a bit uncomfortable. And I never invite them to a social because Simon always, or any social you go to, he will find the one non-Christian there and he'll start telling them about Jesus. Or he'll come and stand at the front, even worse, and do a public invite to come to church or to an event. It's so dreadful. I don't even invite people to socials. Sai is so embarrassing. He is embarrassing, it's true. But actually, we should be wanting our friends to know Jesus. You have the greatest treasure. Why do you not want to share it with your friends? It's crazy to know the God of the world 
to know that you're saved, to know how you get saved, to know that your eternal salvation is secure, but your friends isn't, and to never tell them the gospel of Jesus. I'd question, are you being a good friend to that person? Are you really, for the sake of possibly causing a little bit of offence? Which actually, in my experience, if you're gentle and gracious and kind in the way that you share the gospel with people, it's not offensive. It's a wonderful truth that sets people free. And people are looking for freedom, aren't they? They are looking for freedom. We also work this out by partnering with unbelievers in unreached people groups, like the, um, in South Sudan. Very excitingly, this unreached people group is like nearly termed as reached, are they nearly, would almost be reached, which has happened in our lifetime. That's really exciting, isn't it? When Sai first went out there, our dream was that one day he would be in South Sudan and that he would hear the Toposa tribe worshipping. That was our dream. And every night while Sai was away, that's where he went to sleep to, is to pose the people worshipping outside his window, which he was praising God for and also like, shut up! But it's also, it's amazing, it's incredible to see the promises of God fulfilled in our lifetime. They're actually, anyway, Sai we'll talk about next week, but they're prophesied about in the Bible, this people group, and they have turned to God and they are, it's amazing. They're people small, smooth and tall skinned, tall, it's amazing. So, are we ready to do that? It costs us as a church. You know, it costs. We're annoying. We know we're annoying. We work with the poor and the needy. And so every time we will say to you, what about the poor and the needy? And you're thinking, but I so want to go out for dinner more than I want to give money to the poor and the needy. We're really annoying. We, we appreciate that. But that's because we want the gospel of God to extend to every people group in the world. And for Jesus to come back, don't you want Jesus to come back? Don't you just look at the world and think, oh, I need Jesus to come back. He should come back now. We're desperate for him to come back. And actually, as believers, we have that readiness that whatever it takes, we will push the kingdom of God forward, not by violence, but by love and kindness, acts of mercy, seeing needs and meeting the needs of the people whilst talking to them about the goodness and the kindness of Jesus. It means as individuals, we need to be looking to leave our past behind, to leave behind the dependence on what other people think of you and choose to say that we will give ourselves to extending the kingdom of God and to be obedient to the call of God on our life. You know, it must have been a really scary thought for the Israelites. In real life, it would have been really, really frightening, wouldn't it? To just leave everything you'd known, generations and generations, just to leave everything you'd known. But God did fulfill his promises for the Israelites and he will for us as well. And we live our life knowing that God is a God who fulfills his promises. Um, I'm just going to ask the band to come up. Does everybody want to stand if you can? If you can't, please don't worry. You know, earlier on I gave an opportunity to choose to surrender your life to Jesus to give your life to Jesus, to say, I am not going to be the king of my life anymore. I'm going to let Jesus be the king of my life. I'm going to choose to obey his voice. You know, he loves you so much. He died for you so that your sin, and sin just means all the wrong things that we do, our thoughts as well as our actions, that actually he, he shed his blood, he paid 
for our wrongdoings. I'd love to just pray. I'm just going to say a prayer. If you want to join in with that, just pray the prayer in your head and then grab one of us afterwards and talk to us about that. Lord Jesus, I just thank you so much that you died for me. I'm so sorry that I've lived my life being the king of my own life and ignoring you and not doing as you've asked. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you would have my life. I choose to live how you ask me to live. I choose to make decisions that are right by you and not by my standards, but by your standards, Lord Jesus. I thank you so much that you died for me and I choose to make you the king of my life. And I pray this in your name. Amen. For the rest of us, you know, while I was preparing this, I just felt um, that it was so important to emphasize about being obedient to God. You know, we're in a time of history in our nation where we are so different than everybody else. If you're really living out a Christian life, particularly for the young people, you are so different than everybody else. We are. Our whole life is different. But we are still to be obedient to God. People sometimes think you're a bit crazy. They don't understand how you use your money. They don't understand how you spend your days. They don't understand why you give so much time to church. They don't understand why you won't let your kids do everything that everybody else is doing. They don't get it. They don't understand it. Actually, we are to be obedient to God. And I really feel there's some people today who just, they feel like they've been crying out to God and that God's not listening to them. God is listening to you. He was listening to the Israelites as they cried out and he rescued them. And today we had the joy of reading how they walked out of Egypt. So can I just pray for us as a group of people together? If you feel comfortable, do you want to put your hands out in front of you and we'll just pray together? Lord Jesus, we just praise you and thank you that you came and you died for us. Thank you for all the amazing things that you've given us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the truth of knowing that this life is temporary and we are living for eternity. Thank you for the truth that all of your promises are yes and amen. We thank you that you will do what you have said you will do. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are coming back and that you will come and get us, Lord Jesus, and that you will make everything right, that you will correct all the things that are wrong, that you will bring us to be with you. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, would we be a group of people who are obedient to your voice, who live ready to tell people the good news of Jesus. I pray, Lord Jesus, would we be a people who are devoted to loving you, to serving you, who, Lord, that we would be constantly ask ourselves every day, what am I doing today where I need God to meet me, need God to step in? Lord, I pray we would be a people who are known for our love for you and our love for each other and our care of the people around us, that we would be known as a church who are obedient to the voice of God. And we pray this in your name. Amen.